is Our American Stories, and for the hour, we're going to be talking about the life of Tom Petty. And of course, when you talk about Tom Petty, you've got to talk about his band, The Heartbreakers. They were inseparable. Petty melded California rock with a deep, stubborn Southern heritage to produce a string of durable hits. According with The Heartbreakers, the band he formed in the mid-1970s, his voice was grainy and unpretty. And with that Florida drawl that he proudly displayed, he never got rid of it. There was rebellion in his music. He was writing about losers. He was writing about outsiders. And he drew us all in. He sold over 80 million albums and headlined arenas and festivals practically until the day of his death. Jesse and I saw him just a few months before he passed in Memphis. It was a terrific show. I'd never seen Petty better. Never seen Mike Campbell better. He's lead guitarist. Petty played the Super Bowl halftime, entered the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2002, but it was his songs that stayed down to earth with sturdy guitar riffs carrying lyrics that spoke for underdogs and outcasts everywhere. Producer Rick Rubin wasn't a Tom Petty fan growing up. Quote, I usually liked more edgy music, he told Rolling Stone. But Rubin fell in love with the singer-songwriter's first solo outing, 1989's Full Moon Fever, after running down a dream entranced him. Quote, the consistency and quality of songwriting on the whole album sucked me in, Rubin says. I listened to it all day, every day, in my car for a year. And so did so many of us. Let's start things off with his biggest musical influences. It was Elvis, of course. It was the Beatles, of course. But there was this one band that it really, really inspired him. Elvis was like, uh, before the Beatles... You know, my picture of Elvis was was the American dream. I mean, this was a kid from the South who had broken all the rules, you know, had become his own man and sort of looked like he did, you know, whatever he wanted, whether adults liked it or not. <laughs> you know, that was kind of the picture I had. Mm-hmm. And But that didn't look like something you could be to me, you know. And you mean to be Elvis? You know, no one's ever pulled that off. I mean, you'd have to be Elvis. You'd have to look like that for one thing, and you'd have to, you know, orchestras would have to come out of the shrubbery and on, appear on the beach. You know, like that just doesn't happen. But the Beatles, you know, that looked like something that could be done to me, like. These people look like they're self-contained. They're making music that they wrote themselves. And they're, they're, the music's all there on the stage. They're playing it. And they look like they're really good friends and they're having a lot of fun. And I'll bet they're not worried about bread either, you know. And, of course, they were so absolutely genius, you know, like they were so good even in 64 that it seemed like really hard to ever reach that kind of uh, musicianship. Uh, But then you saw the Stones come on there not much long after that and you went, that I can do, you know, I can do that. That I can do, and he did. So where did it all start? 
Thomas Earl Petty was born on October 20th, 1950, the first child of Earl Petty, an insurance salesman and the former Catherine Avery, who was known as Kitty. Petty recalled a rough childhood with frequent beatings by his father. Music was his escape from his father and that abuse. Long before I even thought of playing anything or trying to perform music, I really loved to listen to it. And I kind of escaped into that world of just listening very intently to these records. Looking back, I think it was probably a safe place mentally for a really abused child, you know, that that was probably what was going on. But I'd kind of always thought... I mean, I can kind of trace back to the age of nine or ten being really interested in the radio and the rock and rollers and thinking that was a pretty cool thing. But I didn't, I didn't even dream that I would do that for a long time. Uh, I have to kind of look at it in perspective. Looking back, I think that's probably was part of it. You know, that was something that was mine and it, it belonged to me. And, it, and it, no one else really had anything to do with it. And by the way, we find this out from Al Pacino when he was talking about his early life. He wasn't abused by his father. He didn't have one. And he was alone a lot. And so he ran into the world of his own imagination and created his own space. And so many of these writers we profile and artists are lonely. They are outcasts. And I think it's why we're all drawn to them in the end. They open up. They share. They break down that wall. And again, when you go to see a Tom Petty concert, if you were lucky enough to see it, and by the way, see Running Down a Dream on Netflix, and you get to see what he was like live. It's a remarkable thing. When we come back, Tom Petty's life, his story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. We continue our celebration of the life of Tom Petty. And this song, not a giant hit, but one of my favorites. Jesse and I were just talking about seeing Petty in Memphis. He didn't play The Waiting. He didn't play Here Comes My Girl. And that was it about Tom Petty. He had so many great songs that no matter how perfect you thought his set list was, it was never quite perfect enough. And again, that is a tribute to the just stunning catalog that he and his band, his boys, came up with over all those years, four decades worth of writing. Well, it all started in the mid-1960s and gigging around in the hometown of Gainesville, Florida. That's where it started, in a band called Mud Crutch. And it included Mike Campbell and keyboardist Benmont Tench. Mike may be the best sideman in the business. And Benmont, too, right up there with Roy Bitton on keyboards. They would become mainstays of the Heartbreakers. The group built a large local following in Florida, and then Tom Petty got the idea that so many young musicians do. I want a record contract. So he went out to Los Angeles, drove all the way there with a tape in his hand and a dream. I was very romantic. I, I did not see why I couldn't walk in the door, play them a tape, and suddenly be, you know, signed up and on my way. Didn't, you know, I thought I had the music. Sometimes I look back at this and go, God, you had a lot of nerve, <laughs> you know. You, but I always felt like if you give me the shot, I can do it. I don't think when I came out, even when we signed to Shelter, I don't think we were ready, you know. I think we thought we were ready. But I wasn't there yet, you know. I was writing songs. I was. They were good enough to attract people into one. If, if it hadn't been for Denny Cordell who said, wait a minute, you know, we're not making a record right away. We're going to take time. We're going to get used to playing in studios. You're going to spend all your time learning how to write songs. And I'm going to expose you to lots of people and lots of records. In those days, you only knew the records you owned, really. I didn't have the money to have a huge record collection. Cordell had every record in the world in his office, you know, and we'd meet there every day at 6. And he'd say, you know... You ever hear Lloyd Price? You know, no, you know, check this out. You know, Larry Williams, no, play, you know, and he'd play all this stuff to me. And my songs got better, you know. But by the time we made our first album as the Heartbreakers, there was nothing in the demo tape that even got recorded, you know. That, and when if I heard it now, I'm sure it'd be embarrassing. I mean, the songs weren't as good, you know, as they needed to be. But we had the talent and we had the will to do it, but we weren't ready yet. If I had, say, signed with Capitol Records, I think we'd have made one sort of semi-good record and been dropped, and I'd have been back in Gainesville, you know, trying to figure out what went wrong. And by the way, what a confession. And what a time in the music business back when there were A&R guys, that's artists and repertoire, and managers who wanted to just bring you along and create a career today, almost impossible. And even then, if Tom Petty had released those early songs, he may have never been Tom Petty. But he waited, and he worked, and then out came Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers' debut album in 1976, 
and this song, which made its way up the charts. follow-up album in 1979, Damn the Torpedoes, and this song. And then came 1981, and Petty did it again. The album Hard Promises, and this monstrous song. And Tom Petty fans wouldn't have to wait long. One year later, the album Long After Dark drops, and this song. One, two, three, four. 
And we were all lucky to have known or found Tom Petty in our time to know his music. And when we come back, we're going to rip through the discography. And more importantly, we're going to hear more from Tom Petty himself on songwriting, the art, the craft, the life. Tom Petty's story, here on Our American Stories. our American story celebrating the life the music the art of Tom Petty and of course when you talk about Petty you've got to talk about his magnificent band and you're going to hear him talk about his band because Tom Petty is not Tom Petty without Mike Campbell and Ben Montench and the rest of the magnificent players that played so beautifully together and it was fun to just go see those boys tour I mean most marriages don't last 40 years to keep a band together that long it's just remarkable and it's beautiful and half the reason we go to see them, and half the reason we go to see Bruce, and the reason we go to see you 2 and the Stones, they stay together, and they keep making great music. And that's hard today, really hard to keep things together. That was 1985, by the way. We're ripping through the discography of Tom Petty because it's so remarkable. Next up, his first solo effort, but some of the boys played on this too, Full Moon Fever and this smash hit. She's a good girl, loves her mama, loves Jesus in America too. She's a good girl, is crazy about Elvis, loves horses and her boyfriend too. And it's a long Living in Reseda There's a freeway Running through the yard And I'm a bad boy Cause I don't even miss her I'm a bad boy For 
breaking her heart And two years later, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers got back together. Into the Great Wide Open was the record, and this smash hit. Well, it started out Down a dirty Started out all alone, and the sun went down as across the hill, and the town lit up. The world got still. I'm learning to fly, but I ain't got wings. The hardest thing Well the good old days May not return And then in 1994 Perhaps his most intimate record Wildflowers And here's the beautiful title track record, by the way, was a difficult one for Tom. In his biography, he said that it was a harbinger of his divorce from his first wife. And he fell into a painful heroin addiction and wasn't heard from from a bit, but rebounded, came back, and continued to record great, great music. Looking back on his time with Petty, Rick Rubin was struck by how hard the late singer-songwriter worked. Quote, when we first met, I was impressed with his dedication to writing. He wrote constantly and called me to come and hear new songs often. There was a poetry about his music and his lyrics that spoke to me. Here's Tom Petty on where lyrics come from. It's kind of a dangerous business looking really deeply into what, you know, the germ that creates songs. I mean, I I don't like to stare at that light very long, you know. I I get a little superstitious about it, but 
there's some kind of actual magic going on there, and I feel like for some reason I was born with some kind of conduit to this, you know, this energy force or whatever it is, and I can have that happen through me if I really try to do it or sometimes when I'm not. Sometimes when I'm not. One example, and we're going to play you the lyrics, but I wanted to read them first from Southern Accents because he was such an amazing lyricist and Rubin found that poetry too, the great producer Rick Rubin. Here are the words towards the end of that song. There's a dream I keep having where my mama comes to me and kneels down over by the window and says a prayer for me. Got my own way of praying, but everyone's begun with a southern accent where I come from. I got my own way of living, but everything gets done with a southern accent where I come from. For the hour, we're celebrating the life, the music, the art of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. We're going to leave with that song, with those lyrics. And when we come back, more about the recording process, working with the Heartbreakers, his partnership with Bob Dylan, and so much more. This is Our American Stories, Tom Petty's story. And as always, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to listen to all that we do. So much about music. Music informs our life. And again, Jesse and I were lucky enough to see Tom Petty just a few months before he passed. Let's take a listen. There's a dream I keep
And you're listening to Tom Petty with Bob Dylan. And I saw that tour back in 1986, the True Confessions Tour. Petty and Dylan swapping songs, the Heartbreakers, the backup band for the entire tour. Hands down, one of the best shows I've ever seen, top three. And by the way, you can rent it uh, and go to Netflix and grab it. It's out there. Just put in Tom Petty and Bob Dylan, and you just won't believe it. And Dylan had a tremendous influence on Tom Petty's writing and on his life. But now it's time to talk about that band and the songs and the music. Here's Tom Petty describing what it takes as a musician to play with the Heartbreakers. If you're going to make the kind of music we make, you you really need to play with musicians and actually play your instruments and everything. And, and you need to... We like it and play between the musicians, so we, we always do our basic tracks with with at least five of us playing. Um, and then, you know, we'll take it and fool with it beyond that. And then, of course, Tom Petty writes his songs by himself, and then he brings them to the band, plays them just off his guitar to start, and he waits, well, for feedback. I wait for them to tell me it's a good song. You know, which you won't get right away. You know, you might get midway through the session, someone, as they're passing, will go, good song, you know, and and that means that's high praise. That's high praise. It turns out the heartbreakers don't gush when even their lead guy, Mr. Petty himself, brings a good song into the studio. They're trying to find what adds to the record, you know, and and we have this process of come in and play it to them on the guitar and they'll kind of be in a circle and watch. And I don't think they're really judging it yet. They're just trying to learn it. And once they've learned all the changes, we'll have a run through. Then if we made it all the way to the end, we'll go into the control room and listen right away. And there'll be a discussion like, okay, well, that's good. But that's not. Binma, that's a good bit there, but don't do this here. You know, the bass line is great, but it should change here. What are we going to do for an ending? It needs an ending. But how about da 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 da? Is the tempo good? No, I think it could be faster. Okay, all those changes in our head, and we go out, we play it a couple more times, we come right back. There are risks and rewards of recording albums without rehearsals. Here's Tom Petty talking about that. We were put in that situation early on at Shelter Records by Danny Cordell, who was, you know, and God bless him, he's passed on now, but he he just put us in the studio, like Shelter owned its studios, so they would just, he just put us in there and leave us, you know, and then check in on us. But he'd say, you know, you need to learn that Making a record and performing live are not necessarily related that much. You know, the the record is is a performance, but there's no one there. You know, you're you're creating uh, just like you would an oil painting. You know, you're adding color. You do your sketch, and the, there's a lot that goes on. So bit by bit, you learn how to make these noises that are you know, attractive or interesting. And that's tremendous fun. It's It still fascinates me that someone would be interested in a, 
a sample of something when you could take a microphone and make your own that may be much better or it's going to be far more interesting. But of course, you would have to play it. Yeah, you would have to play it. And by the way, lucky for Tom Petty that he came of age at a time when a manager and a label would say, go into the studio and just just learn how to do what you do. Lucky for him. Here's Tom Petty on thoughts about fame. A lot of people get famous now very quickly, and then they seem to have a turnover where they're not famous for that long, but someone else steps in to fill the slot. They're, they're sort of disposably famous, I suppose. But I can't keep up with who's famous anymore. I mean, I'm introduced to people all the time that someone will elbow me in the ribs and say, hey, they're famous. I have no idea. But I... <laughs> I know in my time, in my generation, if you'd have become, if they'd have tried to offer my generation music by someone that had won a game show, it would have been hysterical. So true, and times are different, and he's not judging it. He later goes on to talk about how he's nothing against the people who go out and do music that way, but my goodness, the way that Tom Petty did it, you don't go on a game show and audition his catalog. That's not how it works. Well, fame wasn't his motivation, but neither was money. It's never been my motivation. The money that comes with the, the success and all is, is great, and that's, that's probably all that you think it is, but it's, it's less than you think it is, too. You know, it's not going to work out your life for you, and it's not going to, you know... The uh, cliches usually have some basics basic truth to them, you know. And, but I'm not knocking that. Of course, that's, I'm very grateful, very blessed, and never take it for granted. But that isn't, if that were what was driving me, you know, I, I would have stopped. I, I'm doing this, you know, for the music, period. <laughs> and to hang around with my friends and, and play music with them. He just wanted to play with his friends. And that's what he did his whole life. It wasn't the money and it wasn't the fame. It was the music. Who was Tom Petty's toughest critic? I'm probably my harshest critic, you know. I'm still pretty hard on what I'm doing. And, and that, that works to my advantage in a way. Oh, it did. And you would probably hear that from almost every successful artist, almost every successful anything you got to be tough on yourself because pretty soon everyone's telling you you're wonderful and pretty soon you can start to believe it. And we're going to close now celebrating the life of Tom Petty, his art, his music by talking about the difference between those songs in the studio and what happens when you play them live. Because some of his hits were just solid concert songs but others, like the one we're about to play, my goodness, they went to an entirely different place in an entirely different space. And I'm not sure whether Petty and his men and boys knew what they were doing when they did it. U2 has songs like that. When they play Streets With No Name, it's big. When Bruce Springsteen plays Jungle Land and Born to Run, it's big. And you're about to hear a song that's one of my favorites, one of our team's favorites, and it's a concert favorite. 
And it starts off with the band leading, and then pretty soon the audience is singing, and then Petty's singing, and then pretty soon, in a remarkable and beautiful way, everyone's singing together. Aquinas said, when we sing, we pray twice. Let's take a listen to Petty, his audience, doing Learning to Fly together. Now some say life will beat you down And it'll break your heart Steal your crown So start it out For God knows where But I guess I'll know When I get there And that's what we try and do here on Our American Stories, bring you where you need to be and where we all need to be. And there's nothing more beautiful than a bunch of people getting together and singing like this, loving together like this. Tom Petty's life, his story here on Our American Stories. Looking down on the world below to squint at a sky so blue that it hurts your eyes just to look at it. To feel the tingle in your arm as you connect with the ball. To run the bases, stretch a double into a triple, and flop face first into third. Wrap your arms around the bag. That's my wish, Reconcilla. That's my wish. 
And that was Burt Lancaster playing Dr. Archibald Moonlight Graham alongside Kevin Costner in the 1989 classic, Feel the Dreams. Doesn't matter how old you are, when you've seen the movie and when you see it again, it plays like it was made yesterday. It always will. There are some movies and some works of art like that. It's like listening to Johnny Cash. Doesn't matter where, doesn't matter when. You just connect. And if you watch that scene again, you'll see that Kevin Costner appears somewhat in awe of Lancaster, as he should be. Hand gestures, voice inflections, all superb acting craftsmanship. Though only a few minutes, this is acting at its very best, this short scene. And we're celebrating the life of Burt Lancaster, who died on this day in history in 1994. Burt Lancaster's movie career spanned 43 years and encompassed more than 50 films. He was born to be a leading man. At six feet two, he was handsome, rugged, masculine, with a dazzling smile and piercing eyes that could go cold. Today, there are those actors who trade effectively on their looks and physique. Others can play deep, introspective roles, while some excel at playing tough guys. But it's hard to name one who can do all of those things as Lancaster did in his long and varied career. Come to think of it, it's hard to name one with his screen presence and sheer versatility. To find out more about this Hollywood legend, let's hear from the man himself and his biographer, Gary Fishgall, on what it was like growing up in the violent East Harlem area of New York City. I know that my roots come from my upbringing. My mother was a very strong disciplinarian and a big, powerful woman. She weighed about 250 pounds and stood about five foot nine. And she used to have an expression when we did something. She'd say, shut up or I'll jump down your throat. Bert was actually the youngest child of the Lancaster family. He grew up in East Harlem, which is a neighborhood in the upper part of Manhattan that at that time was largely populated by Italian immigrants. His mother and father were Irish by descent they were poor. It was a difficult childhood. He had to go out and hold boys' jobs like many kids uh, in that period, shoveling snow, shining shoes, whatever he could do. Bert met Nick Cravat when he was about 12 years old. Nick was a street kid, a little kid, about five foot two at, at uh, his maturity. And he was feisty. He was like a little pit bull. And so you had this odd combination of Bert, who could be quite gentle at times, and this feisty little Nick. For Bert and his best friend Nick, and to get a picture of Nick, think of a young Joe Pesci. Well, there was refuge for these boys from the mean streets, and that was at the Union Settlement House. It was basically an after-school boys club. Here's Nick's daughter, Tina. The Settlement House was a great place for the kids to go. They offered classes for kids, after-school programs, and Bert said if, if it hadn't been for the settlement house, who knows, he could have ended up, you know, committing crimes or something, he said, because the settlement house gave him something to do. He, he went there and he went to the library. He said he was an avid reader. He also had his first uh, exposure to the theater there, but he was not interested at all in acting as a kid. He thought that was sissy stuff. He graduated high school at 16 and went on to college with a basketball scholarship and was bored. Interestingly, it was at the Union Settlement House that he met an Australian acrobat by the name of Curly Brent. 
he saw Curly one day doing his workout at the Union Settlement House gym and said, boy, that's great stuff. Do you think he could teach me some of it? And Curly took him under his wing and, and gave him a, a foundation as an acrobat. And the next thing you know, brought my dad around. So the two of them started to learn all this circus acrobatics. They made their own bars and they worked and they practiced. And then they got an act together and then found an ad in a paper for the K Brothers Circus. And they wrote a letter to K Brothers offering their act, and they called themselves Lang and Cravat. Their parents chipped in. My grandmother, my father's mother, chipped in $50 or so, and then Bert's father chipped in about $50. And they got this car, they drove it down there, and then they showed up, and there they were. And they were hired, and that's how the circus life began. And Bert gave up his New York University basketball scholarship for a life in the circus. Here again is Lancaster biographer Gary Fishgall, director Ted Post, and Burt Lancaster. In 1940, Burt injured his arm and he had to retire from the circus for a while and he didn't really know what he wanted to do. In Chicago, he took a series of odd jobs. He worked, for example, as a salesman at uh, Montgomery Ward and he worked in various other rather menial uh, jobs while he tried to figure out what he wanted to do with his life. And before he really had settled upon something, uh, World War II intervened. I met Bert Lancaster for the very first time, World War II in Italy, and he was with the 21st Special Service Unit. When they used to entertain us, we used to watch Bert uh, do some tricks on the trapeze and also get involved with various skits and sketches. The next time I saw him was in New York when he had just come off a play, Sound of Hunting, and uh, he played a sergeant. Well, when I got out of the army in 1945, I quite accidentally met a man in an elevator who asked me if I was an actor. And as I said to him, yes, I'm a dumb actor. Dumb actor is an expression we use in the circus for when you don't talk, you just do an act. He was going to visit a girlfriend, Norma, who later became his wife. And then as it turns out, the guy said, hey, would you be interested in reading for a part? You look like the perfect, you know, what we're looking for, the perfect look. And the part was not a very big part, but what he did impressed a lot of people. And so Hollywood got interested in him. And when we come back, more on the life of Burt Lancaster. As always, our This Days and Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu for all of their free and terrific online courses. More on the life of Burt Lancaster after these messages. This is Our American Stories. We continue our hour-long celebration of the life, the career of Burt Lancaster. After seeing action in North Africa and Italy in the Second World War, Burt returned home and almost immediately booked his first Broadway show. A Sound of Hunting opened at the Lyceum Theater on West 45th Street on November 20th. 1945. The star of uh, A Sound of Hunting was Sam Levine, who was a well-known New York actor at that point. And Sam kind of took Bert under his wing. Uh, Bert had 
a number of studio offers, but what was he going to do? He was really a novice in the field. And Sam said, well, the first thing you need to do is get an agent. And he began to introduce Bert to appropriate parties. One of them was named Harold Hecht. And Hecht said to Lancaster, look, I'm not the biggest agent that you're going to be meeting with, but you would be a very important client to me. I won't eat unless you eat, and I guarantee I'll get you jobs. He also said something to Bert that was even more intriguing. He said, if you're going to be the star that I think you're going to be, within five years, we can be making our own movies as producers. And for Lancaster, that had enormous appeal. Lancaster booked his first motion picture in 1946. It was the lead in Ernest Hemingway's The Killers, co-starring the irresistible Ava Gardner. This initial film made him a star. From the get-go, Lancaster called the shots. If there's a single thread in the career of Burt Lancaster, it may well be the notion that nobody, nobody, was going to tell him what to do. Lancaster was going to be his own man. And this was a remarkable notion for an actor to have in 1945 when Burt started in the movies. In the 40s, Lancaster was primarily seen as a tough guy. He was playing a series of inarticulate, physically constricted, vulnerable, but hardened men. He wanted to tap other sides of his persona. The first opportunity came with All My Sons, a play by Arthur Miller, in which he really showed himself as a very endearing, typically normal young guy in love with a young woman. And by the way, if you can on Netflix, you can check out so many of his great performances. And All My Sons, you get to see a very vulnerable son, Burt Lancaster, playing the son of Edward G. Robinson, who in the end has a real moral conundrum about planes during World War II. It's a fascinating story. One of my favorite Arthur Miller plays, not as well known as Death of a Salesman, but my goodness, the acting in this, as good as it gets. And by the way, the idea that you would then be calling your shots as an actor, well, at that time, actors, sports athletes, they didn't have agents. They didn't have representation. They just did whatever the studio told them to do. And Lancaster just had an idea in his head that that wasn't the way it was going to be for him. In 1948, along with his agent, Harold Hecht, and producer James Hill, he founded one of the movie industry's very first independent production companies, responsible for, most notably, the film Marty, starring the great Ernest Borgnine. In 1950, Lancaster showcased his athleticism and his acrobatics on the big screen. In fact, he was one of the rare Hollywood actors to dispense with stuntmen. Here's producer James Hill and actress Virginia Mayo. When we got around to making films, the one that really was tailor-made for Bert was The Flame and the Arrow, and for the first time, Bert took truly an active part because he staged all of the physical scenes himself. Bert was very impulsive, and he had a lot of energy, and uh, he was always kind of bouncing around. Uh, we had this scene, this love scene, where he had been arguing and fighting with these noblemen. And he was angered, and he pulled me to him so forcefully that he hurt my arms. So uh, I went home that night with these bruises on my arm, and my husband didn't know what had happened. <laughs> but it was because of Bert. 
Lancaster was never fond of the Hollywood lifestyle. His friendships were not based on who you were or who you knew. So as soon as he could, he called upon his childhood friend Nick Gravett to make a coast-to-coast trip in order to act with him in the movie we were just talking about, The Flame and the Arrow. Eventually, when Bert made it to Hollywood and, and really started getting parts and getting known and everything, then that's when he talked my dad into coming to Hollywood. So my dad packed up the house and, and the wife and <laughs> from Indiana and out to Hollywood he went. He didn't have any acting experience, so they were nervous about giving him lines. So my dad said something like he talked his head off and they gave him the, the role of a mute. <laughs> So he kind of talked himself, I guess, out of speaking. This is the type of industry where you don't always get an honest answer. And Bert, in particular, could always count on my dad to just be right off the cuff with him. And he wouldn't mince words. He wouldn't pull his punches. And sometimes, you know, Bert would get insulted, and they'd get in a fight, and they'd argue. But they were like brothers. Because of Nick's friendship and honesty, Bert grew and expanded dynamically as an actor. Americans now began seeing on the silver screen Lancaster's irresistible grin that was as wide as a Cadillac's radiator. And all of a sudden, instead of this heavy, brooding, slow-moving, bottled-up kind of Burt Lancaster persona, which people had been used to at that time, you got a guy who was light and buoyant and acrobatic and smiled all the time. People today who think of those incredible teeth that had its real start with the flame in the arrow. It really gave Bert a whole different persona, a whole different side of himself. And remarkably, throughout all of the rest of the decades of his career, he kept that persona and the original persona, that, that sort of hunkered down man of control, sort of side by side, and would take the two of them out and interchangeably use them as the pictures demand. Lancaster knew who he was, and he also knew what he wanted. He also knew what he wanted from his fellow actors. Here again is Virginia Mayo and legendary film director Sidney Pollack. Bert loved to direct. The second movie I made with Bert, he practically directed Chuck Connors because Chuck was new. This was his first picture, and Bert knew it, and... He was about to take over Chuck and his performance because he felt he could guide him. What are you doing here? I'm on my honeymoon. I'm on his honeymoon, too. Destroyer! He's closing in! He was always off in the corner with Chuck telling him what to do. And I'm sure the real director was a little miffed at it, but I don't think he said anything. Bert was a very demanding, tough, guy. You had to know what you were doing to work with him. He didn't have any patience with you if you didn't know exactly what you wanted and what you were doing. And he was a very intimidating guy to argue with. And then came the breakout film, From Here to Eternity. It starred Montgomery Clift, Donna Reed, Ernest Borgnine, and Frank Sinatra. Lancaster made love to Deborah Kerr in a beach scene that set a standard in romantic softcore eroticism for years to come and represents the film equivalent of the off-scene front page of some faintly risque bestsellers. Here's a scene from Here to Eternity, Fishgall and Burt Lancaster. Nobody's going to do nothing. Anybody does any killing around here, I'll do it. 
Okay, Fatso. It's killing you want. Come on. The single most often shown scene from Burt Lancaster's career is, of course, the beach scene from Here to Eternity. It took three days to actually film that scene because they had to time the waves in such a way that it would work. The director originally had in mind that the two of them would kiss standing on the sand. Well, when uh, the producer, Buddy Adler, saw it in rehearsal, he said, well, you know, this is terrible. It doesn't have enough spice. And Bert said, well, we, we actually rehearsed it another way. W would you mind if we showed that to you? Strangely enough, it took us a long time. We found it very hard to strike the right kind of note and balance in the piece. And we had to do it over and over and over before we got it. And of course, another reason we did it over and over again is because we rather enjoyed it. I never knew it could be like this. Nobody ever kissed me the way you do. And if you get a chance, check that one out too. I mean, Sinatra is just unbelievable in this movie, playing the part of a drinking, ne'er-do-well, tough... Well, just a tough army brat. And it's a heck of a movie set in the scenes of Hawaii and Pearl Harbor and the aftermath. This is Lee Habib, Burt Lancaster's story, his life story, his movies, his work, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We continue the story of Burt Lancaster. We're celebrating his life, his work, and we talk about just about everything here on this show. But the actor's life and film, we've done some great hours. Al Pacino and Martin Scorsese, uh, we did terrific hours about both of them. And you really get to hear their life stories in their own words uh, from a bunch of different sources. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. And take a listen to our Al Pacino hour. It's so good. And the same with Martin Scorsese. And a bunch of New York guys in this particular case. Because Lancaster, we learned, was born in East Harlem, which was then an Italian neighborhood. And by the way, if you want to go to the best Italian restaurant in New York, I think in the world, Rayo's is still there in East Harlem. And it's the same old little place it's always been. There's also a Rayo's at Caesars in Las Vegas. Order the spaghetti and meatballs. You, you'll die. Let's go back to Burt Lancaster's story. And the essence of his presence as an actor continued to reside in his intense, if increasingly introverted, physicality. And it was not without latent sexual connotations. And in, in an era of filmmaking when moral convention required that bodies be masked like faces in a carnival, his muscular physique tended to remain disturbingly indiscreet. His natural extroversion was seen to advantage in westerns, of which one of the most memorable examples is Vera Cruz in 1954. 
Here is that film's producer, James Hill. Looks like we tied up with the wrong outfit. When I think about Bert and his desire to find a role on the screen, the picture that comes immediately to mind is Vera Cruz. Heck, kept looking for somebody to play the villain in the piece. I had done 25 or 30 pages, and I knew they were pretty good, and on the strength of them, Harold got Gary Cooper to play the uh, hero, and I didn't know who to look for, really, for the villain. I had talked to Bert at great lengths about a favorite phrase of mine, villainy is moonlight, and that's playing heroes that are villains. And then one day Bert said to me, he said, why don't I play the villain? I began to think of him playing the part and a script not finished, kind of began to tailor it. This to me was my dream, was to have a villain that we fall in love with. Countess, you're beginning to talk my language. It was in Veracruz, as I say, that he came full blossom. Amongst women, Bert had a monumental fascination. And when people talked of him being like a caged lion, any number of women said how much they'd like to be in that cage with him. I fell so much in love with him myself, just watching him on the screen, that I went to Cooper and said, I'm not going to kill Bert in the picture, Cooper. He's just too likable. And Cooper said, when I agreed to do it, the agreement was that I kill Bert. I won't finish the picture unless I kill him. So I said to Bert, I, and I told him this, Bert said, look, quit worrying about it, Jimmy. That's okay with me. For God's sakes, he can kill me. By the way, you can type Vera Cruz and just look for the best lines in the movie, and all kinds of stuff will come up. There are more great one-liners, more great dialogue in that movie, and he's acting, of course, alongside his hero, Gary Cooper. And this is an era when the American Western was at its peak, and it wasn't until Clint Eastwood... Well, the Clint Eastwood did Unforgiven that the American Western was resuscitated. Uh, and we owe a lot to Clint Eastwood for doing that. It was an idiom that had just been just sort of tossed aside in the 60s and 70s is, and pretty much wholly dismissed by the 70s. And here's actress Rhonda Fleming and Terry Moore. Bert never played the movie star. He never played that game. He socially was rarely ever seen out with other performance. He was always behind the scenes and his brilliance as an actor I think was an innate gift. He challenged himself with everything he did. He had to be challenged. After Come Back Little Sheba, he just stepped out all the time and took uh, 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 roles whether they were like him or not. I know with John Wayne and most actors, John Wayne used to say to me, well that's not a John Wayne role. But there was no such role for Burt Lancaster. He would jump into new waters and was daring like he was on the trapeze. He dared try anything, and he did. And if you want to talk about daring, it was almost his very next picture in a very, very different movie, The Rose Tattoo. And the Irishman Lancaster dared to play an Italian-American. It was a 1955 film based on a play by Tennessee Williams that centers on Serafina, played by the remarkable Anna Mignani, a volcanic Sicilian woman living in an Italian-American neighborhood in Louisiana who is left devastated by the death of her husband. Grief turns her into a recluse, 
but the arrival of a handsome truck driver, Alvaro, played by Burt Lancaster, offers hope of a new love in her life. Here's a scene. I'm hoping to meet some sensible older lady, you know? I, I don't care if she's a little bit too plump or, or not such a stylish dresser. The important thing in a lady is, is understanding, good sense, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wanted to have a, a nice, well-furnished house and a profitable little business of some kind. I see. And uh, <laughs> such a lady with a well-furnished house and business. What does she want with a man with three dependents <laughs> and the purchase and the beer habit? Plays the number. Oh, my. Love and affection. In a world that, that's lonely and cold. Yeah, it might be lonely, but I would not say cold on this particular day. Love and affection is what I got to offer on hot or cold days in this lonely old world. I got nothing else. Manjicavallo has nothing. Who? Me, Alvaro Manjicavallo. Ah, yeah. <laughs> you know, Manjicavallo means eat a horse. You know this. <laughs> but I don't have a horse to eat, not even a chicken. <laughs> I'm the grandson of the village idiot of Ravari. Oh, I see you like to make jokes. No, 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 no joke. Davvero. He chased my grandmother in a flooded rice field. She slipped on a wet rock. Balloon. Echo. Here I am. <laughs> and by the way, what a different piece of acting than the last one. It comes out of nowhere. And this is the remarkable thing about this man. Big hulking. He could have just played, well, big hulking parts. That's it. He wanted something more for his life and his career. And it's why we're dedicating this much time to him. Burt worked often with another Hollywood legend, Kirk Douglas. Here again is Burt and Rhonda Fleming. Kirk is a very dear friend of mine, and we've done six pictures together. And we have a lot of controversy and conflict when we work because he's very much like me. He's uh, conceited. He tries to tell me how to act. I try to tell him how to act. And it goes this way. And strangely enough, out of this kind of feuding and fighting and fussing has come a great respect and mutual love that we've had. The difference in the acting styles between Kirk and uh, Bert, uh, interestingly enough, two strong men, two powerfully dominant men who had different approaches. Bert was, I felt, more aware and gave out more to his leading lady or his leading actor. When Bert looked at you and Bert responded to you or Bert gave you the dialogue, you were in that scene, it was real. And it was like a beautiful tennis match you had playing with a good partner. It was magic. And the love scenes, well, all I can tell you is that I have been, I have done love scenes and been kissed by some of the most stunning, handsome, gorgeous Hollywood male stars in the business. And it's been wonderful. But let me tell you something. When you've been kissed by Burt Lancaster, you have been kissed. Wow, I'm not sure what to say after that. When we come back, more on the life of Burt Lancaster. Maybe he should have had some kissing lessons for all of us. That's some statement. More on the life of Burt Lancaster. What a legacy. What a screen career. We're going to rip through the movies, by the way, in the next segment, our final segment, Burt Lancaster's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Story. We continue with the life of Burt Lancaster. And by the time 1960 rolls around, he's had quite a number of epic and great films behind him. Again, The Killers is where he started it off. All My Sons, The Flame and the Arrow, Come Back Little Sheba, a masterpiece with Shirley Booth, From Here to Eternity, an American classic, Vera Cruz, a Western classic, and The Rose Tattoo, a drama classic, and one of the great Tennessee Williams plays. Gunfight at the OK Corral, The Sweet Smell of Success, Run Silent, Run Deep, and The Devil's Disciple. He had done all of these by 1960, but it was his 1960 performance that got Pert the acclaim he'd always looked for. Lancaster was cast as a hypocritical firebrand preacher in Elmer Gantry, which won him his only Oscar, though he had four nominations throughout his remarkable career. Sin, sin, sin. You're all sinners. You're all doomed to perdition. I had a friend of mine who lived in 106th Street, and he and I were pals from the time we were 15, 16 years of age. What the hell's the big idea? When I did El Gantry, I got a letter from him, and he said, Bert, he said, that's the first time I've seen you act like you used to act when you were a kid in the streets, full of the old devil and baloney and so forth and so on. I loved that part. El Gantry is an all-American boy. He's interested in money, sex, and religion. I'd like to tear those holy wings off you, make a real woman out of you. I'd show you what heaven's like. No golden stairways or harp music or silvery clouds. He was a favorite with my mother. That's what I thought was wonderful. He only had one tie, and he would, the night that he got his Oscar, he came by to ask her if his everything matched that he was wearing. The tie especially. She said, you don't have another tie, Bert? Well, we'll make it match. I'll get one of uh, Jimmy's father's shirts. And that's what he wore the night that he won the Oscar. And the winner is Bert Lancaster. And it is a remarkable performance. Then the very next year, by the way, he does a film called Judgment at Nuremberg, which is essentially a relook and a take at the war crimes trials of the Nazi criminals that killed so many millions of people. And he plays a German judge who convicts himself. And it's a remarkable performance. Spencer Tracy plays the prosecutor, who is, of course, our Supreme Court Justice Jackson, who took off from the Supreme Court to lead the tribunals in Nuremberg. It's a remarkable film. And Lancaster, again, showing his range. He's playing an old man, this incredible, big, powerful body. And here he is, shriveled up and playing an old judge who knew he did wrong and just wanted to be hanged. He wanted to die, guilty or not. And he had a defendant, a defendant's lawyer, Max Van Saito, trying to plea for his innocence. But Burt, Burt Lancaster wanted nothing to do with it, his character. He wanted to die. Here is some very personal stuff about this very private actor. He used to wear the most inexpensive clothes. Like he wore, he had a pair of khaki pants. He wore them forever. One pair of khaki pants and one coat that was a kind of a Harris tweed that he called his thousand miler and there was always a tie stuffed into the top pocket of the jacket. He'd walk into 21, he'd take the tie out, tie it around around his neck and make a nice knot and he'd walk in and he looked classier and more elegant than 
than anybody in the room. I remember once passing him when he was sitting in his dressing room, and he was reading a book that I had read, and I stopped to discuss it with him. I said, do you read much? He said, well, I try to get through a book every day. He never became a part of the Hollywood inner circle. I don't remember Bert ever inviting an studio executive or anybody else like that over to his house. He hated premieres. He hated really talking to the press. When he was married for many years to Norma, the mother of his children, they kept uh, very quietly living in their home in Bel Air. He loved his children. He was a good father. He had five kids. There's three girls and two boys, Jimmy and Billy, um, Susan, Sheila, and Joanne. Jimmy, who's the oldest, um, is married to my cousin Annie, as a matter of fact. His major passion was bridge. Almost every Saturday night, there was a major bridge game going on over at the Lancaster house. Bert would show up in this big brown Cadillac, and I think he would just honk, and my dad would go out there, and the two of them would jog in the mornings. Just because he became a famous movie star didn't change the fact that Nick Cravat was still his friend. Bert had a better sense of who he was than almost any man I know. Uh, and because of that, there was nothing that I know that he was afraid of. He, he knew exactly who he was, and he was, he, he was comfortable with it. So he didn't have to change when he became a movie star. And what a relief that is for a man when he doesn't have to change who he is because he is who he is, and he knows who he is. And here are some final words from Burt Lancaster, Rhonda Fleming, actor Peter Rygort, and Terry Moore. I'm a pain in the neck. I try to direct the picture. I try to tell the other actors how to act. People hate me, and when it's all over, they wind up loving me. I don't know why. Any time Burt was in a film, you want to go see it. Any time he's on television, you want to watch it. That's the magic, the magnetism that he had. It seemed like he never forgot where he was from which is rare in most people. Most people are trying to run away from where they're from. He was proud of his background. He was reverential about the people who influenced him in his life. And I think that's why people like him so much, because I think they see in him themselves. It still seemed like he was from the audience. He didn't seem apart from the audience. He seemed from the audience. And that's not an easy thing to do for an actor in general, and especially for an actor who works in such a large way. I think the uniqueness of Burt Lancaster's persona is that he could be to everybody whatever they wanted him to be. He could be the poet. He could be with great wisdom and soul. He could be the athlete, the acrobat, the Western star riding the plains with Kirk Douglas. He could be whatever you want him to be, because he was everything. He encompassed it all. He was an actor. And through the 60s, my God, the work, Birdman of Alcatraz alone, that's just a career maker, just that movie. The Professionals, watch these. The Cassandra Crossing, The Island of Dr. Moreau, Go Tell the Spartans. 1980, he stars with a very young Susan Sarandon. Atlantic City's the movie Louis Malle directs. He gets nominated for another Best Actor nomination in 1980, 20 years after, of course, his Oscar win. In 1983, Local Hero, just terrific. 
And then comes 1989, and a whole new generation of Americans gets to know Burt Lancaster. He played Dr. Archibald Moonlight Graham alongside Kevin Costner in Field of Dreams. We bumped in with that clip. Here's the wish scene being granted. The old doctor is now a young ball player. Yet, Moonlight Graham gives up this second chance at a baseball career in order to save a little girl from choking on a hot dog. What do we got here? She fell. This child's choking to death. Get her up. Hold her steady now. Hot dog. Stuck in her throat. <laughs> oh, she'll be all right. She'll be turning handsprings before you know it. Thank you, Doc. No, son. Thank you. Oh, my God, you can't go back. You can't go back, can hey, it's you? It's all right. I'm sorry. It's all right. I best be getting on home. Before Alicia begins to think I got a girlfriend. Hey, rookie! You were good. And boy, was he good. His acting career ended after he suffered a stroke on November 30, 1990, which left him partly paralyzed and largely unable to speak. Thirteen days before his 81st birthday, Burt Lancaster died in his Century City apartment in Los Angeles from a third heart attack at 4.50 a.m. on October 20th, 1994, at the age of 80. Lancaster was cremated and his ashes were buried under a large oak tree in Westwood Memorial Park, located in Los Angeles. A small, square ground plaque inscribed only with Burt Lancaster, 1913 to 1994, marks his final resting place. Upon his death, as he requested, he had no memorial or funeral service. Humble in birth, humble in death. And as always, our This Days and Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you with their free and terrific online courses. Burt Lancaster died on this day in history, in 1994. His story, his work, his art, his films. Go to Netflix. Order the Burt Lancaster catalog. Sit down with your family. It's a great way to think about movies. Follow a director down. Follow an actor down. That's what we do here on Our American Stories. We drill deep. We bring to you the stories you think you know, but don't know the rest of the story. Again, Burt Lancaster's story. Here on Our American Stories. Thank you.